0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Mark chapter 6 is where we'll be. For those of you who are joining us online or those in the sanctuary that may be new and unfamiliar with uh, the people here at Heritage, my name is Jeremy and I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage. It's my privilege to bring you the Word of God this morning. As we come to our passage today, <clears throat> it's important to once again be reminded of the context from which it comes. There are two miracles of Jesus that are recorded in all four Gospels. The first one is the resurrection. All four Gospels record the resurrection. But interestingly enough, the second one is the passage that we're going to look at today. It's the feeding of the 5,000. And it's also interesting to consider that all of the miracles that Jesus did, this story right here of of every miracle that he did, this one here stands alone in the, the minds of the apostles and the writers of the gospel. There's something about this that particularly stands out in their minds, that makes it significant for us to consider this morning. Now right before our passage today, there's a story of a feast that takes place in the house of a political king. Uh, he, he was kind of a, a would-be king, a wannabe king. He was really just a tetrarch in Galilee, but the people called him a king. And this, this story of this king and this feast is inserted into the middle of Mark telling the reader that Jesus had sent out his disciples to, to herald the gospel of the kingdom throughout Israel. And the kingdom comparison between the kingdom of Jesus and the, and the kingdom of Herod or, or as a sort of type the kingdoms of the world is, is rich for us to consider. After the record of this feast comes another story. After the record of this feast of Herod comes another story of a feast prepared by King Jesus. And there is a stark contrast between the two. You see, at Herod's feast, there is one king who sits as a tyrant on a throne, protected from His people, he is guarded by guards, he's surrounded by military leaders. But in the other feast, in Jesus' feast, the king sits like a shepherd on a hillside among his sheep. At Herod's feast, only the nobles and the elite are present. At the feast of Jesus, the common people are present. At Herod's feast the food is prepared by gourmet chefs brought out on silver platters. At Jesus' feast, the food is prepared by the hand of a loving messianic king. At Herod's feast, the main event is the risque dancing of a a burgeoning 12- to 14-year-old TikTok star. But at the Feast of Jesus, the main event is the truth of the Word of God being taught by Jesus. At Herod's Feast, there is a on full display the manipulation and the dysfunction of Herod's family. But at Jesus' Feast, there is a display of the compassionate heart of a shepherd king. At Herod's Feast, the apex Ends the story with the execution of the man of God, John the Baptist, his head being brought out on one of those platters. At Jesus' feast, the apex is Jesus the man of God who is the bread of life for his people. The contrast between these feasts is so stark. And again, we have our attention drawn to answer this question in the Gospel of Mark. If Jesus is a king, then what kind of king is he? Today, we're going to see two things. We're going to see that Jesus is a compassionate king. One, he cares deeply for his people, verses 30 to forty-four. And two, he carries divine authority in verses 45 to 56. He cares deeply for his people in verses 30 to 44. And he carries divine authority in verses 45 to 46. Let's begin by reading this first section of the feeding of the 5,000. The apostles returned in, to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Verse 31. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, well, sh- Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, Well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up into heaven and set a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people and he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up the 12 basket they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. The disciples have returned from proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. They are super excited to share the results of their labor, the things that God had done through their being sent out by Jesus. And they, they begin telling Jesus all that they had done and taught. Jesus' re, Jesus's response is an interesting departure from their excitement his eyes towards the care of his disciples so he says to them in verse 31 come come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while now the text tells us that one of the reasons that Jesus wanted to retreat with his disciples is that there were so many people coming and going that the disciples had no leisure they had no time to eat and all the busyness of their life The disciples were not taking care of their own hearts and their physical well-being. And when Jesus calls them to a desolate place, the idea seems to be a, a, a place of quiet and of reflection, a place of inactivity where they can rest, they can be refreshed physically, mentally, spiritually. They can set aside the labor And find rest and nourishment in the presence of Jesus. And now when Jesus calls into a desolate place, this this place of, of desolation is something that comes up again and again in the scriptures. Whenever Jesus wants to retreat, he goes to a place where no one else is. A place to be quiet. So verse 32 tells us, They got into a boat to do exactly that. They went away in the boat to a desolate place. By themselves. Now, there was no ad campaign for Jesus at this time. He had no PR group that was going out advertising all the things that, you know, all the events that were scheduled for Jesus. So people are just observing. They're just watching Jesus and trying to anticipate where he'll be and what he'll do. Now, if anything, Jesus is seeking to escape the crowds at this moment. But apparently, people recognize him and his boat. They see the boat, and they begin to kind of watch it. And it's likely that Jesus, because he's just traveling down the shoreline of the, the the western part of the Sea of Galilee, it's likely that he never really left eyeshot of the shoreline. And so people look out, they see his boat out there, they know that's Jesus' boat, they know that's where his disciples are, and they, they get out of their houses on foot, and they just begin to kind of run along the shoreline. And follow his boat, just trying to anticipate where it is that he's going to land. by the time Jesus gets to his destination in verse 34, with his disciples, there's already a roaring crowd that has run on foot to meet them there. Now now, now pause for just, just a moment here. If if you'd never heard this story before, if you didn't know the outcome, you didn't know what was happening. It's happening in real time, just like it was for the disciples. How do you think the disciples would have felt when they saw the crowds? How do you think Jesus would have felt when he saw the crowds? They, They had just spent... Hours rowing or, or sailing to reach a desert place where there was no town so they could get away and retreat and be by themselves. And now that they finally get here, there's people. A lot of them. I've had the same experience going backpacking. You know, it's like you, 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 you plan... You, like, pack up all your food. You you get your pack adjusted. You drive forever and a day out into the middle of the wilderness. You, You get on a trail and you start making your way. And for hours in the hot sun, you slave away under a heavy burden to get to some beautiful remote lake. And you pull up to the shoreline. And right across the lake are a bunch of teenagers with a Bluetooth stereo blaring music you just think "Ah, i worked so hard to get here to be by myself and and here's this crowd but contrary to how you and I or maybe even the disciples might have reacted Jesus has a different thing happening in his heart Mark gives us insight he tells us what's happening in the heart of Jesus in verse 34 when he went ashore He saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus' first instinct is not frustration. He's not concerned about the inconvenient burden of people. His first instinct is towards compassion. His first instinct is not towards suspicion of their motives, but compassion on their state of being. He cares for their souls profoundly. Let me just insert a little side note here, a little application for us. You ever felt like you're a burden to God? You ever have one of those prayer moments where you're like, God, here I am again. (laughs) I'm sick of me, you must be sick of me too, but I have nowhere else to go, so here I am. Notice here the heart of Jesus, he's not burdened by these people, he's compassionate towards these people. So immediately he starts teaching them. Jesus begins feeding their souls. Their minds are engaged. Their hearts are challenged by the teaching and the instruction of Jesus. Now, now imagine for a moment the, the perspective of the disciples. You, you know, Jesus says, hey, let's get away on a retreat. They're still hungry. They're tired from their missionary venture. When they arrive at the shore, there's this crowd. The rest that they were promised never really arrives. Jesus goes right into teaching. And he starts, let's say, 10 a.m. And he's still teaching at 11 a.m. And he's still teaching at 12 a.m. I'm just saying it's biblical. He goes long, right? I want to be like Jesus. From 12 to 1, he's still teaching. 1 to 2, 2 to 3, 3 to 4. The day is passing them by, and Jesus is still talking to this crowd of people. This is an incredibly long day. And there's no Taco Bell nearby. There's nowhere for them to run. They're just stuck on this hillside in the middle of nowhere between villages, between towns. There's no resources for them. The disciples are tired. They're hungry. So you can imagine them. They just start whispering on the sidelines as the day drags on and is now spent. The disciples love Jesus and his teaching, but, I mean, the, the, the entire day has gone by. Let's, let's be practical here. And finally, a couple of the disciples begin to make their way over to where Jesus is teaching. Uh, oh, excuse me. Pardon me. Uh, hey, uh, Jesus. Jesus. Hey, um, listen, we you know, we really love your teaching, I, nobody teaches like you. In fact, we we could do this all day. Oh, geez, look at the time. It's been all day. You know, but honestly, Lord, we're, we're, we're a little concerned about the crowd here. Verses 35 and 36. This, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and, 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 and for them to buy themselves something to eat. And Jesus is like, oh, you're, you're concerned about the people. Yes, Lord, of course. We're, we're, We're deeply concerned about the needs of the people. It's just been such a long 48 hours. And Jesus turns to them and says, oh, okay. Verse 37. You give them something to eat. This is a that's the place. What, what do you say to that? These disciples are being challenged to provide food for what some commentators believe was a crowd of maybe possibly fifteen to 20,000 people. The text tells us at the end that there were 5,000 men because typically they only counted the heads of households, the, fam- the heads of families. This is an insane request from Jesus. So the disciples, they respond with a logical response. Well, should we, should we go into the village and, 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 and buy 200 denarii worth of bread for them to eat? Is, is that your plan? We should just go spend all this money to feed this entire crowd? Now notice the limitation that they have placed in their minds about Jesus. One, they think that when Jesus asks them to do the impossible, Jesus is somehow being unreasonable. This doesn't work. This is a terrible plan. On top of that, it involves more walking. And we're tired. It's very inconvenient, Lord. Two, they think that Jesus isn't able to do anything about the situation. Now, somehow, Jesus is able to open blind eyes, cast out demons, heal withered hands. But this, this is just a very practical need. This is not something that Jesus takes care of, providing bread for people. I think it's very, it's low on the miracle ladder, right? Not very high priority. They can go and buy food for themselves. But Jesus doesn't even blink at this. He simply asks the question in verse 38. Well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. So immediately the disciples, they go back, they start rummaging around to see what kind of provisions they have. And we don't get this from Mark's gospel, but in John's gospel, it tells us that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, speaks up and says, hey, there's a kid over here. He's got a sack lunch. it has got five loaves and two fish in it. They they stole a kid's lunch <laughs> and brought it back to Jesus. <laughs> right? Now, this unnamed child probably gave it up willingly. His mom, being a good Jewish mother, is ultra-nurturing, has packed him a lunch for his adventure to go see Jesus. But they grabbed this kid's sack lunch and they make their way back to Jesus. And when they get back, they say, well, we've got five and two fish. Five loaves, two fish. Right? Then Jesus tells them to have the crowd sit down on the green grass. I think that's interesting. The, the text describes him as a shepherd, seeing, him, seeing the people, as sheep without a shepherd, and so he begins to act on their behalf. Then he has them sit down on the green grass. You remember what Psalm 23, verse 2 says? He makes me lie down in green pastures. Jesus then tells the disciples to organize the crowd. Organization is also biblical. That is being led by the Spirit. (laughs) He has them sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties imagine how long that must have took i mean trying to get a crowd that big to do what you want them to do so the disciples now are are shuffling through people it's like okay sit down over here we want a group of 50 over here we want a group of 100 count yourselves off one two three okay no no you you go over there you know how this works right an immense amount of organization to make all of this happen but they all sit down who knows how long that took it must must have been ages to get the people to comply with the request of jesus and after all the awkwardness of that exchange the disciples can tell that jesus intends to do something but the question is okay what will he do verse 41 tells us that jesus took the loaves And the fish, he looked into heaven and said a blessing and broke it into pieces and gave them to the disciples. Now we aren't given the blessing of Jesus, but it is widely held that Jesus would have said the typical Jewish Baraka blessing over the meal, which was the, the blessing that you gave at the beginning of the meal. And if that's true, these are the words that Jesus would have said. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. (laughs) Those would have been the words of Jesus as as he blessed the bread. And in this blessing, Jesus would have called his Father the King of the universe who brings forth bread from the earth. Now what are the disciples thinking? In this moment, i 'm betting that they anticipated him doing some sort of miracle. 'm betting they're starting to get a sense that Jesus is going to do something, but they have no clue how he 's going to do it. Maybe they expected the bread to grow into like giant loaves or 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 maybe they expected the loaves to start multiplying, or maybe they, that, like loaves would start falling from the sky. I mean realistically. In Israel's history, this was something that God did to provide for the needs of his people, was have bread from heaven come down. But hilariously, instead, Jesus takes the only bread that they have, and then he breaks it. And instead of handing them whole loaves to give out to the people, he hands them out fractions of loaves. There's only five loaves. There's 12 disciples. Now, some of them are probably carrying fish, so he's handing out portions of loaves and fish to the people or to to the disciples. Now, imagine being a disciple in that moment. (laughs) Think about that for a moment. You're like, okay, ready for the bread. The bread. And Jesus is like, here you go. Here's a half a loaf. You, you take the half loaf from Jesus' hand. You turn around to face this crowd of, of fifteen to 20,000 people with a half a loaf of bread in your hands. Okay, Jesus, Jesus said, feed the people. Okay. So you take your half a loaf and you go over, you start it out, at one of the groups. Each of the disciples now spread out to these groups that are out there. And, you know, I would imagine that they would have started small. Right? Like here. Here you go. Here you you, you take a piece. Not too big. We, we, we got a lot of people here. Not too big. Just, hey, hey, hey! Calm down. You'll get some bread too, just a little bit. But every time somebody tears off of a piece of bread the same amount of bread is there it's it's an amazing miracle somewhere between 5 and 20,000 hungry faces are fed by the disciples every piece of bread torn from the chunk makes no difference at all. There's always just a little bit more. There's always just enough bread for the need that is in front of them. This is always the way it is with Jesus. He gives us what we need for what's in front of us. Verses 42 through 44 tells us that by the time it's done, everyone ate until satiated, and the hungry disciples had one full basket full of bread and fish left over for each disciple. Twelve baskets. The Greek language here infers that everyone not only was satiated, but they were glutted. They were filled, gorged. The same word gets translated gorged in other portions of Scripture. Isn't this the way God works? God can do whatever He wants to meet the needs of people, but... Oftentimes, he wants to use people to meet the needs of people. He could have had bread rained down from heaven. He could have done that. But he chose to use his disciples. And in the giving of their, what provision they have, they end up with a full basket of bread when it's all said and done. You see, you can't outgive the Lord in time in labor, in service, in resources. God is never indebted to any man. So here's five lessons from the loaves I want you to take away from our time together. First of all, never judge your problems by your resources. Never judge your problems by your resources. If the disciples would have held on to their limitation, they would have never seen God's amazing work that he wanted to do for them. Second thing, accept God's invitation to participate. Jesus didn't need the five loaves and two fish. It was an invitation to his disciples and to that little boy who gave up his sack lunch, who was sitting back just amazed at what was happening. It was an invitation for them to participate in the work of God. Third thing, the miracle happened in the hands of the disciples. The miracle did not happen in the master's hands. It happened in the hands of the disciples. God uses people to minister to people. A lot of times we want to send our brothers and sisters away saying, be warmed and be filled. But if God identifies a need to you, it is often true that God wants to use you to meet the need. God ministers His grace by His Spirit through the hands of His disciples. Fourthly, use what you already have. God's way of provision usually begins with us utilizing what we already have. He wants us to use what we already have wisely. What they did have was almost laughable. It was just five small loaves from a sack lunch, but that was enough. Use what you've got. Even though the amount was tiny, Jesus was still able to provide with what they had. And then lastly, Jesus cares about our bodies. should not be seen as insignificant here that the care that, the care that Jesus exhibits for the bodies of these people they are hungry they're not going to die between there and the village but he cares about their bodies he cares about what's the, the fact that they have this need one of the great tragedies of the western world is that we inherited a poor view of the body now there's lots of physical or philosophical reasons for that we go all the way back to plato And his philosophy that the material world was evil and that only the spiritual world is what mattered. And and that carried on through different uh, heresies within the church. The Docetists and the Gnostics had those same divisions of the material world being evil and the spiritual world being good. But there is no distinction like that in the scriptures as it relates to humans. God cares about our bodies. God cares about our physical being. Did you know that? Matter of fact, the end of our story results in a physical resurrection of the saints of God. Like, if our bodies were useless to God, he'd just give us a new one, right? Why does he need to raise our old bodies? He cares about our bodies because we've been made body and soul to bear the image of God. That's got infinite value to him. Well, at this moment in our text then, it transitions to Jesus shooing his disciples into a boat. Notice verse 45, and immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, which is between three and six o'clock in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea. And he meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The transition from the feeding uh, of this huge crowd and the miracle that took place to Jesus telling the disciples to get into a boat and sending them off by themselves seems a little bit abrupt. And one of the possible reasons it is so abrupt is that the disciples were getting caught up in the feelings and the sentiments of the crowd. We know from other gospel accounts that this is the moment where the the crowd begins to try and seize Jesus and make him the physical king of Israel. And it could be that the disciples were being caught up in the energy of that and ready to do the same. So to quell the energy of that movement, Jesus sends them off towards Bethsaida and disperses the crowd himself. In John's gospel, we know that Jesus, after this moment, gives some very difficult teachings to create a defining downshift in his ministry. He's limiting his popularity through the way that he teaches. Maybe you'll remember the story where he says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part with me. He says that to this crowd that's chasing bread. Now another possibility is that Jesus is purposefully creating space for him to be alone with the Father. He needed this time. Despite being weary from a long day of teaching and ministering to the crowds, Jesus is in need of refreshment and nourishment from his Father. You know, there's only three times in the Gospels that Jesus is described as withdrawing and being alone in prayer. And it's usually the result of oncoming crisis. The night before he appoints his disciples, here in Mark 6 and the Garden of Gethsemane right before Jesus goes to the cross. And after this long and difficult day spent ministering to the spiritual and physical needs of the multitude, Jesus is left exhausted. But that hard day, instead of driving him away from God, drives him to the Father. That hard day drove Jesus to prayer and not from prayer. And from his place of prayer, Jesus is now watching the disciples as they struggle in the sea. The Bible tells us that it's the fourth watch of the night between 3 and 6 a.m. And they've been toiling for a very long time. The day has been spent. They got on the water. They head out in the middle of the night. The wind is contrary to them and they are rowing all night long. And Jesus is on the shore watching them in the storm, knowing that they're not making progress, and he sits in prayer with his Father. You know, after praying for a time, Jesus can see that the disciples are stuck and going nowhere. So he comes up with the most obvious solution. Let's take a walk. (laughs) He gets down on the shore and he begins walking on the water to the disciples. Now, throughout the ages, people have tried to come up with natural explanations for these accounts of what Jesus did. With the loaves, they said that Jesus merely inspired the crowd and, and they took out bread that they already had and began to share it with one another. And that's how 5,000 to 20,000 people got, got fed that day. It was an inspirational moment. And when it comes to the walking in the water, they said, well, maybe he knew where the rocks were. Or maybe there was like a a, the wind revealed like a sandbar and he was out walking on the sandbar. But you know what all these explanations really actually demonstrate? They actually demonstrate a lack of faith in the power of Jesus as God. All of their explanations just demonstrate this one thing, a lack of faith. Jesus here is revealing his deity, He's doing something that no mortal can do. He's walking on water. Now, this, is, this is something that only God is being described as being able to do. Remember in Job chapter 9, verses 5 through 8, as Job is describing God, it says, He who removes the mountains and they know it not. When he overturns them in his anger. Who, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. Who commands the sun and it does not rise. Who seals up the stars. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Only God is being described as having this ability. Now there's further evidence given in the text that this is a revelation of Jesus' deity in, in verse 49. It says, but when they saw him walking on the, water, on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. In verse 48, we're told that he would, pass, he would have passed them by. This, this phrase is likely an illusion meant to key the reader into the same phrase that is used in the Old Testament. When the glory of the Lord passed by Moses in the cleft of the rock in Exodus chapter 33 verse 22. Or when when the glory of the Lord passed by Elijah in the cave in 1 Kings 19.11. The idea being that, that Jesus is revealing that, that he is the glory of God incarnate in that moment. He would have passed them by. When the disciples see Jesus walking on the water they think he's a ghost. The scene is slightly comedic here because here's the disciples. They're rowing, rowing, rowing. They can't get anywhere. They see Jesus come walking out on water, and immediately Peter's like, Aah! right? Like they run and they, they grab a hold of each other, like, ah, you know, it's a ghost. They're freaked out. They're screaming here. So Jesus has to come and comfort them. He was going to pass by them, but he's like, oh gosh, they're completely freaked out here. So he comes over and he says to them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. The phrase it is I in the Greek here is ego ami, or I am, I am. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this phrase is the same phrase that is used to translate the great I am that I am from Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. Verses 51 to 52, as soon as Jesus gets into the boat, the seas are calm, the winds cease. The disciples are utterly astounded. The Bible says, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What should they have understood? What should they have known? Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He's not just the king of Israel. He's the king of the universe. That's what they should have known. They saw him as a political or a military leader. But Jesus is so much more. He has more power than they could have anticipated. He carries divine authority. He is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that they could ask or think. Jesus is God walking to them on the waves of the sea but their hearts are hardened hardened like Pharaoh who saw the miracles and resisted what he was seeing what was being revealed to him about God's hand the arm of the Lord is not short Their hearts were hardened. Only hours before they see him provide for his people the way God provided for the Israelites in the desert. And then here, when they go to cross their own sea, they're troubled. They're afraid. And they're doubting. This is so like human nature, isn't it? Listen to me. Listen. The storms on Wednesday are the rehearsal of what you learned on Sunday. That Jesus is God. He's a compassionate king. He loves you and you can trust him. The storms on Wednesday are the rehearsal of the truth that you have been learning on Sunday. Remember this lesson. Take hold of it by faith. At the end of the passage in verses Fifty three to fifty six, we see Jesus go back to ministering to the crowds. In verse fifty three: When they had crossed over, they came to the, to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized them and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to to whatever they heard, or to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or in countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made whole. At the end of this passage here, the sick and the lame get it. They recognize his authority. If Jesus can just pass by, there's there's healing in his wings. If we could just touch the symbol of his authority, the, the border of his garment, we can get healing because Jesus has that kind of authority and power. As many as touched him were made well. With this description of the healing ministry of Jesus, Mark concludes this brief section. Where we see the power of Jesus over the laws of nature. Normally 5,000 people are not fed by one small lunch. This is not normal. Normally men don't walk on water. This is not normal. Normally the sick are not instantly healed. This is not normal. Except by the power and the presence of the king in the midst of his people. This entire passage is full of interruptions. The disciples and Jesus just needed rest, but the crowds pressed them. The disciples needed to get to Bethsaida, but the wind is contrary to them. You know, when we were discussing this this last week during the sermon development team, uh, Paul reminded me of this quote from Henry Nouwen. He said this, I remember an old priest who one day said to me, I have always been complaining that my work was constantly interrupted. And then I realize that the interruptions were my work. The unpleasant things, the hard moments, the unexpected setbacks carry more potential than we usually realize. There is divine intention in the interruptions of life. And so we ask the question, what kind of king is he? He's a compassionate king with divine authority. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word and for the reminder this morning. And as we grab a hold of, by faith, the reality of who you are. God, I pray that your character and your nature would so work its way into our hearts and minds that when the storms come on Wednesday, that we are held fast by the truth of Sunday. I thank you for your compassionate heart towards our need. Let us be the kind of disciples who put our hand to the work, are ready to be used, because we know, Lord, that you desire to use your people to do the miraculous. You use your people to meet the needs. So, Father, send us out now as disciples. For your glory and in your name. Amen.